from The Advocate magazine in partnership with GLAAD. This is LGBTQ and A. I'm Jeffrey Masters, and this is one of those interviews that shaped how I think about activism, what it is, and how it can be most effective. Ann Northrup was a member of ACT UP in the 80s and 90s. She had previously worked in national news at the CBS Morning News. And when she joined ACT UP, the direct action HIV AIDS organization, she quickly became a key figure working to help develop and train members on their media strategy, how to best talk to the press. I would say to the activists, all right, I'm going to train you. The first two words you have to know are ignorant and arrogant. They know nothing. They think they know everything. Anne was also one of the members of ACT UP that was inside St. Patrick's Cathedral at the now infamous Stop the Church action in 1989. Sarah Shulman, the ACT UP historian and author of Let the Record Show, touched on this action and its significance in our interview from about a month ago, if you want to go back and check that out. And Anne here describes how it all went down. And by down, I mean not really at all as planned. I thought I was going to die. I'm lying in the center aisle of the cathedral, and I'm sure I'm going to be trampled to death by all these people. So all of that is coming up today. And then as a reminder, this month we are dipping into our archive. This originally aired on the Luminary app and was recorded in February of 2020. It might even have been our last in-person interview before the world changed. So please enjoy. Here is Anne Northrup. I want to begin with your work in ACT UP in the 80s. When did you first become aware of ACT UP and how soon after did you join? Almost immediately is the uh, last answer, but I had been a producer for CBS News. I'd quit because I was disgusted by what was happening there. I thought it was empty and offensive. And I ended up taking a job at the Hetrick Martin Institute for Lesbian and Gay Youth and becoming an AIDS educator to teenagers in the schools all over New York City. As I got educated about what I had to educate people about, it became clear to me that the epidemic was a political event, that it was very much like the Vietnam War that I had marched against, that it was about people in power not caring about anyone else and being perfectly happy to send people off to die. So I could see the thread was clear. And then I went to something called the War Conference in the beginning of 1988. And that was a meeting of about 200 LGBT activists from around the country. And I begged to be invited to the War Conference. And I got there and people started talking about ACT UP. And I thought, oh my God, this uh, sounds like something I really should check out. As soon as I got back, there was a Monday night meeting. I went to the Monday night meeting and I walked in and I thought, oh my God, these are my people. These are the cranky individualists who are really too weird to be part of normal society. And they're here doing civil disobedience and direct action. I can go out in the streets and yell and say what I want and do what I did during the Vietnam War and the feminist movement. And it all just felt like home. So when we say ACT UP and when we say the AIDS crisis today, I think the first thing that people think about is men. Like, did you feel welcome as a woman in ACT UP? 
There are very few places in the world where I don't feel welcome because <laughs> it just doesn't occur to me not to. There were plenty of women there. It was a great mix of people, as I eventually learned. And what I eventually decided was that the core were certainly gay men who were personally threatened, many of them living with HIV or afraid of acquiring it. And they were there to save their own lives. And I sometimes say that uh, ACT UP started and was successful because it was gay men who thought they had privilege were shocked to find out they didn't because suddenly people weren't caring about saving their lives and were arrogant and angry enough to do something about it. There are a lot of communities that are under attack who are not empowered in the same way that uh, those men felt empowered. A lot of them came out of good jobs, middle or upper middle class lives, and they they were the people who felt they could fight back. And so you're saying that primarily it was white men who thought they had power and they were just furious to find out they didn't yes. compared to marginalized communities now who never maybe thought they had power? Correct. That's fascinating. Well, it wasn't the whole story, of course, and there were uh, a lot of people of color there and people who came from less privileged backgrounds. But this core leadership, I think, were people who were did feel empowered to fight back. And that was exciting. It was exciting to be in a group of people who were willing to take the risks of fighting back. And there were a lot of women who had experience in the feminist movement or the anti-war movement who could teach these men how to fight back. One guy got up in the room one night, a straight white man, lawyer, radical, who announced that he had been the national secretary of SDS, the Students for a Democratic Society, which was a very active and radical uh, direct action group in the 1960s and 70s. People came from all sorts of backgrounds and with all sorts of skills. And one thing I like to say about ACT UP when people say, you know, what were you doing there in a room of predominantly men? And I say it was one of the only rooms of men that I could walk into where the men were asking the women for instruction and help and values and asking actively to be taught feminist values, direct action techniques and values. And it was really a room full of love and mutual respect for many years. And that was thrilling. That is so interesting, especially what you were saying about teaching each other things they've learned in other movements. Mm -hmm. Because I have always wondered, I hear many current movements saying they are stealing, in a good way, stealing practices and actions from the AIDS movement mm -hmm. and those strategies. And I always wondered, well, who were, was ACT UP stealing strategies from? Uh, from uh, anti-war movements, from the civil rights movement, from uh, feminist movements. It, it has been a process of leapfrogging each other along the way. And the right wing is part of that too. They have learned techniques from us. We have learned techniques from them. Uh, you may have heard of the Williams Institute. I was part of the group that originally founded it, Institute for Gay and Lesbian Strategic Studies, Eyeglass. And we specifically sat around and said, what is our movement missing? We decided that the movement had been built on anecdote rather than hard information. And that what the right wing had done was uh, create all these uh, organizations like the Heritage Foundation and the American Enterprise Institute, which were full of phony crap, realistically, but they purported to be 
factual think tanks. And they were often cited in the news as such. Exactly. And so we wanted to have a think tank that could be cited and could be a foundation for a lot of the work we did. And that is exactly what it became. And the Williams Institute has become a foundational organization to collect information and make it the basis for things like the marriage equality movement or uh, there's a lot of economic information that comes out of that. They work with the Census Bureau to get us counted and seen in the population. It was the Williams Institute that helped the Census Bureau prove 20, 30 years ago that we were existed in 99.9% of the counties of the United States so that those people could then go to their members of Congress and say, you don't think you have LGBT constituents, but here's the info from the Census Bureau and you have to pay attention to this. I think it's so interesting, too, that you say that ACT UP was successful because of this anger coming from people who thought they had power and privilege but realized they didn't. I always thought that they were successful because their goals, while lofty, were very specific and measurable. That's true. But I think it was a fearlessness about uh, confronting and shaming people in power publicly that uh, forced these issues uh, to be dealt with. You know, I think the movement needs people coming at people in power from every angle. We need lobbyists. We need people in on the inside working. We need people who are donors. We need people who will write their members of Congress. But we need people out in the streets who will raise issues honestly and directly and shame people in power when they don't do the right thing. So that brings me to forever you've said that for an activist, it is not your job to be liked. It is not your job for the public to like you. It is your job to get something accomplished about a specific issue. Correct. I think an example is one of the famous actions you took part in where you were arrested and convicted of four misdemeanors. And this was at St. Patrick's Cathedral. Yes, it was. The, the action's called the Stop the Church. It was yes. from 1989. Can you talk about the action and why it made both queer and straight people so upset? <laughs> yes, I can. <laughs> Thank you for putting it that way. Why is it? Why are you laughing? <laughs> well, because it did, and uh, it's not always put exactly the way you put it. So I'm amused and uh, uh, appreciative of that analysis. And uh, it's an action that was dear to my heart, so uh, I love talking about it. But you're right, it was called Stop the Church, and there's a very, very good documentary about it called Stop the Church. You know, we were mad because the Catholic Archdiocese in New York City had a seat on the public school curriculum committee that talked about sex education in the schools and health education. We thought that was completely inappropriate, not to mention everything they were doing on an ongoing basis against women's reproductive rights. So those were our main things. Uh, so we decided that as we did with other things, we wanted to confront them publicly. So we planned this Stop the Church demonstration, and the idea was to have thousands of people in the street outside St. Patrick's Cathedral and for some of us to go inside to do what was supposed to be a very controlled, dignified... <laughs> 
demonstration. It didn't turn out that way. And mostly it didn't turn out that way because one of our members, Michael Petrellis, wonderful activist who is extremely controversial, but he decided that was all too staid and that we should be much more outrageous. First of all, we debated it within ACT UP ourselves for months, uh, very, very big debate about whether or not we should do this, whether it would make us hated forever, whether it was appropriate to go into the cathedral to stage an action. And real opposition within the group, and we talked about it forever because we didn't want to do anything without having agreement on it. And so we were willing to take the time to work these things out. So we did. And finally, we agreed that, yes, we would do this. And then we spent more weeks figuring out exactly what we would do that would be appropriate. I was part of a group that was going to lie silently in the middle aisle of the cathedral. And that was sort of a take on... uh, Uh, demonstrations that had been done by nuns in Catholic churches who were protesting the place of women in the church and the refusal to ordain them or give them any kind of equal standing. So we thought, well, nuns did that. So, you know, certainly we could do that and that would be okay. And then there was another group that was going to stand and read a statement that was very serious and, you know, not inflammatory. And this, we also talked about the fact that the um, the mass, rather than being a sort of sacred and inviolate, inviolate event, was more of a tourist attraction. There was a gift shop in the back of the cathedral open during the mass. They built a platform inside there for TV cameras for the local news organizations. This is all incredibly thought out. Oh, for months, yes. We were a smart group that thought a lot about things. And this is the kind of planning that went into everything. We One thing we were very clear about was we didn't just run off half-cocked and do stuff. We would research an issue, figure out what our opinion was, go to the people in power, ask them to make a change that we thought was needed, and only if they refused would we then do any kind of demonstration. We were not crazies. We were smart people. So we planned all this out for St. Patrick's, and we were very public about it. It was all announced. So when we got there that Sunday morning in December of 1989, the cathedral was closed because they had removed everyone who'd been in there. They brought in bomb-sniffing dogs, many police, both uniform and plain clothes. The mayor showed up to Ed Koch to uh, defend the cardinal. The chief of police, the police commissioner, was there with Ed Koch in the front row. And as I stood outside, we were all in plain clothes, as it were, dressed for church to go inside. And so we were in a crowd outside waiting to be let in. And I was standing there with Peter Staley. We were pretending to be a couple and standing right next to us and discussing how these horrible act up people were going to invade were people from Operation Rescue who had come down from Buffalo to defend the church. It was very scary, very scary. But eventually we got in 
they couldn't ID us because we weren't wearing ACT UP t-shirts. And we scattered around the cathedral and planned to do everything we were going to do. And when the appointed time came, we, you know, those of us who were going to lie in the middle aisle got up and moved there. Other people got ready to do their thing. And Michael Petrellis got up on a pew, stood on a pew and started screaming at the cardinal, you're a murderer, you're a murderer. And the entire place erupted in uh, screaming and yelling and people throwing things at us and, you know, all the Operation Rescue people and the parishioners were furious and were trying to get at all of us. I thought I was going to die. I'm lying in the center aisle of the cathedral silently, and I'm sure I'm going to be trampled to death by all these people. But eventually, uh, the cops came in with orange stretchers and one by one picked us up and carried us out. I happened to be the last person carried out. And by that time, everything had calmed down and was silent. So I started saying, and it was ringing through the cathedral, uh, we're fighting for your lives too. We're fighting for your lives too, which I hoped would be effective. Maybe, maybe not. But they got us all out of there. They took us off to the police precincts. I like to say I got home to watch the second half of the Giants-Broncos game. (laughs) Priorities. Life is rich. You have to do different things. But meanwhile, some had stayed behind. And the thing that happened then was that as the mass resumed, the uh, wafer and the, what is that, the communion was happening. One of our members went up to take communion, Tom Keene. And as he was handed the wafer, he was just so angry at the church and everything they were doing and killing his friends and all of that, that he just spontaneously crumbled the host, the wafer in his hand, and let it drop to the floor. And that became the front page news all over the world. And that's why people were furious at us, because our side thought we had just, you know, been so outrageous that we had violated everything and people would hate us forever. And the right wing hated us for what we had done. For many years thereafter, I was asked about that action by people who hated that we had done that and thought it was completely inappropriate. But I knew what had happened, and I had complete confidence that we had done the right thing. And one of the things that taught me that was one of our members was a guy named Gabriel Rotello, who's now a producer in Hollywood of various things. And he, his mother lived in Danbury, Connecticut. And shortly after the demonstration, when it was just a firestorm of negative publicity around the world, he talked to her on the phone and she said to him, you know, my friends and I in Danbury have been talking about this and we've reached a conclusion. And that is that before this, we thought gay men were weak and wimpy. But now we know that gay men are strong and angry. And I thought... Bingo. That's exactly what we would have wanted to accomplish. That's a massive change to the public perception of gay men. Did that also encompass queer women? Well, I think we've all ridden this train together and at various speeds at various times, whether you want to look at Ellen or... Billy Porter or whatever, whatever you think of Pete Buttigieg, and I have mixed feelings, uh, his success in running for president and being seen as a viable candidate is astonishing. For this to happen in, as they say, my lifetime is uh, something I could never have predicted and, and six months ago would not have believed could happen. So 
I think we've all gotten to a point in history, and maybe that's some of why we're not out in the streets more. And, and the work we're doing is pretty successful. With getting arrested at the Stop the Church action, was there clout with an act up at like getting arrested and like how many times you've been arrested? <laughs> there was some of that. And there was some sort of jovial contempt for those who hadn't been arrested, but never in a way that was a serious problem. You know, I, I, yes, I have uh, ridden the uh, part of the St. Patrick's Six routine for, you know, here and there. I'm sorry, what is that? Well, there were about uh, 100, 140 of us arrested inside the cathedral. But as with almost every other demonstration, there were plea bargains or arrangements with the DA and people, you know, were assigned community service or made some arrangement. But six of us decided that this one was so important and so volatile that we wanted to actually go to trial. And that almost never happened. So it ended up with six of us being called the uh, Safe Sex Six or the St. Patrick Six who went to trial. And two of us, me and Charles King, the co-founder of Housing Works and executive director until, well, still almost retired, we went pro se. We defended ourselves. And then the other four were represented by a lawyer. And we all worked together on this. We were all being prosecuted together. And we did all get convicted, although uh, a couple got off on a couple charges. And you wanted to go to trial to like prove a point? We wanted to go to trial. <laughs> well, I was personally offended that I was being prosecuted for trespassing in an area that I thought was basically being treated as a public area. So that kind of, I was personally offended by some of this. And, and I didn't think disrupting a church service should be something the government is prosecuting, you know, separation of church and state. But mainly we wanted to continue publicity around these issues. And with getting publicity for ACT UP and your work, right before ACT UP, you worked in news and journalism. You were from yes. Good Morning America, CBS Morning News. Yes. And you were able to put those skills to use with ACT UP, showing them how to manipulate the media to get yeah. coverage. Was it apparent right away that you'd be able to use those skills in such a like complimentary way? Instantly. <laughs> <laughs> Because I had worked in mainstream news for, as you say, at ABC and CBS and before then. So I'd had, that had been my career. And when I came into ACT UP, I could see that the issue was to publicize this stuff. And I had become disgusted with the mainstream news media and knew how ignorant they were and how... Uh, I would say to the activists, all right, I'm going to train you. The first two words you have to know are ignorant and arrogant. They know nothing. They think they know everything. Does that help you or hurt you when the journalist doesn't know anything? Both is the real answer. It gives you a great opportunity to educate them and to control the conversation, but you have to be on your game to know how to do that. You have to know that when you go to a demonstration, they only know one question to ask, which is, why are you here? But they don't know the issue. They don't know a second question to ask. And so they can be at your mercy because you can really control it if you're prepared to lead the conversation. And so I taught activists how to flatter journalists, how to interview them before they interview you, to find out who else they're talking to, to try to guide them to different sources. 
I taught them not to worry about their own sound bites, but to worry about the story as a whole, to talk to journalists about what they thought they were doing with the story. I'd, t- I'd show them an evening news broadcast and say, all right, how much of the of a piece is the soundbite and how much is the reporter telling you what how to think about the story? And clearly 90% of the reporter defining the story. So really what you should be doing is helping the reporter understand the story in the way you want them to, rather than worrying about how whether or not you're going to be quoted. It's media training. Yeah. Just simply. Exactly. How helpful were queer journalists working at these news organizations? Oh, not at all. <laughs> because if they're working at those organizations, their priority is to maintain their jobs at those organizations. Now, that's a vast overgeneralization and not entirely fair. And there were certainly queer journalists who were more interested in talking to us than straight journalists, some of them. Sometimes it's the straight journalists who are not worried about their jobs and sincerely interested in what you had to say and not trying to sort of protect themselves from being identified with you. Often the queer journalists in the mainstream organizations didn't want to be accused by their bosses of being on your side. So they were more standoffish, less available. Again, that's a vast overgeneralization, uh, but we developed relationships with all kinds of reporters in all kinds of places. Queer and straight. Yes, absolutely. Wow. I mentioned like lesbian visibility during this time and how it compared to, uh, for gay men. How visible and active were trans people at the time? Not so much at that time. We're talking about uh, more than 30 years ago. And uh, so there were always some trans people around, but it wasn't nearly the visibility or the issue that it is now. That really is the issue that has exploded in the last decade or so, uh, from my point of view, from what I've seen. And trans people are certainly far more visible and uh, prominent. And we also have language to like more concretely describe the trans experience. Back then, that was not a word that was that used that often, right? Uh, correct. And there weren't the nuances of language that there are now. It was just, everybody was transsexual, and uh, uh, there weren't. There just weren't nuances, non-binary didn't exist. Uh, Was cross-dresser used at the time? Well, uh, yes, but not as a, uh, you know, if anything, that was uh, cross-dresser specifically was perceived as a straight man who uh, was heterosexual, who wore women's clothes. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Wow. I mean, you mentioned earlier, but at this time, you were working at Hedrick Martin. That was yes. that was your job. Act Up yes. was not your job. This was your job job. Correct. And you were doing education, yeah. educating people about HIV and queer, uh-huh. queerness, yes. homosexuality. Yes. And that was necessary because to, conf- to educate people about HIV, you had to confront homophobia. When you walk into a high school classroom and you put the letters A-I-D-S on a board and ask them if they know what those letters stand for. And a young man immediately says, adios, infected dick sucker. Whoa. (laughs) Uh, First of all, I thought that was stunningly brilliant. (laughs) I've never heard that. I Neither had I. And I complimented him immediately on his uh, creativity and uh, uh, quickness and intelligence. 
But I then went on to explain that that was not necessarily an appropriate analysis or a broad enough one. But everywhere we went doing AIDS, basic AIDS 101 education, we certainly ran into a lot of ignorance and homophobia and not even always hatred, but just assumptions that that was all the epidemic was about. And so it became clear to us very quickly that we had to deal with that. So we developed a separate curriculum that was just homo 101. And we figured out how to go into classrooms and go from uh, uh, the start of the class where you'd have kids who would say that their favorite, favorite uh, Friday night activity was to go into the village and beat up fags to 45 minutes later saying, you know, I don't think that's such a smart idea. I don't want to do that anymore. Uh, so we were quite proud of ourselves. That's for a quick turnaround. A enormous. I had a teacher stop me on the subway one day and say, I remember you. You came to my school. You changed our whole school. That's pretty thrilling to hear. You know, everything we're talking about is in the past, like the 80s and 90s, more or less. I think it'd be remiss not to mention that for a lot of marginalized populations in the country, like the epidemic is like ongoing. Absolutely. I think some young men of color, particularly black and Latinx. People in the South have a larger rates. I think that some of the, the stats are horrifying that like one in two black men will get HIV in his lifetime. Uh, And they used to say that about all gay men. There have certainly been improvements, uh, but not across the board. As you say, there are particular populations that are still very much at risk and not being effectively taken care of. It is shocking to me that anyone gets infected these days. How desperately have we failed to do the necessary education, to provide the tools, to You know, all of that has been so lacking and we're still letting people get infected and die because we're still uncomfortable with these issues. And I think that we talk about like inequality now more than ever. And we really see that in terms of like HIV prevention rates. It's like the white gay men, the people who look like me that are going to be fine statistically. Well, most of you, but not all of you. But yes, disproportionately, it is young men of color who have sex with other men who are the most vulnerable still to the epidemic. And the trans community, but also looking at, you know, we live in New York City, New York, San Francisco are like on the rate to have zero new transmissions. They're getting there. And these are like wealthier, like urban centers. Yeah. You know, in 2003, it's a while ago, but you said that you believe the majority of people with HIV didn't know they had HIV. Do you still think that's the case? To me, the real answer is I don't know. And I don't know how we think we know. Uh, If we're not testing everybody, if we know some people have it and we know most of the people who have it because they have been tested and are on treatment or whatever, how do we think we know the people who don't know they have it? If they don't know they have it, how how do we know they have it or don't have it? Whatever. I just think it's a, it's a kind of made-up statistic. I, every time I hear things like, well, two-thirds of the people who have it know they have it, but a third don't know. 
How did you come to that statistic? It's a mystery to me. Oh, because there's no way to know if somebody doesn't know they have it to count them. Yes. So is that why you said maybe what I said that like San Francisco was on the path to zero new transmissions because there's so many we don't know? I think we have documented some real advances. And I think a lot of people more and more are on prep. Uh, More and more people are uh, untransmissible, but, um, you know, the virus is suppressed. People are on treatment. Uh, We do know a lot about that. But I think it is a mistake to think we know everything. And I think until we get to really universal routine testing, we will not know the full dimensions of the epidemic. I hate to say it, but like you saying that makes me think, oh, that's impossible with the way like healthcare exists here. Excuse me. There are a lot of people who don't get health care. Yeah. So that's why I think it's like impossible to like mandate testing. Oh, testic. to get that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I see. Yes. Oh, no, I'm agreeing with you. <laughs> well, I, I think there should be, uh, look, I think uh, schools should be reorganized to the extent where we should be making sure kids are financially literate for their lives, are uh, focusing on health issues, are uh, basic living issues. I think all of that in this day and age has become more important than uh, geometry class. And I'm I, I'm a math nerd to some extent. I believe in a classic education, but I am frustrated by the extent to which people cannot take care of themselves and we're doing nothing about it to help them. And I think one of the ways we should be helping people is getting them into healthcare and really walking them in the door, not just putting up a few posters and expecting people to respond to that. I think we need to be much more proactive in making this a healthy working society. And instead, we have uh, the horrible things going on that we have. Now that you are in your 70s and you've reached this queer like elder territory, do you feel a responsibility taking that on? I feel like I'm still 18 years old, Jeffrey. Really? (laughs) Yes, really. Uh, And people say that, you know, then, oh, I just don't feel I'm as old as whatever. I'm here now, and I can tell you that I'm I'm still bombing down Colorado Boulevard in my parents' car in high school, in my mind. So it's very hard for me to identify with being old. It's That's horrifying to me. There are times when I resent being treated as an elder. I don't like people offering me seats on the subway. <laughs> it's upsetting. But on the other hand, I'm offended if people don't treat me as someone with some experience and knowledge that might be useful. It's another mixed bag. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure. Thank you. Really, it was a pleasure. I appreciate that. Thank you. And that is our show. As always, if you enjoyed the interview, please leave a comment on Apple Podcasts and help us spread the word with a tweet, a Facebook post, an Insta story. Doing things like that is the number one way you can help our show continue to grow. We did a big listener survey a couple months ago, and the number one thing that I learned is that the majority of listeners discovered our show through personal recommendation. So if you've done that, thank you so much. And if you haven't, hey, it is the perfect time to start. We're brought to you by The Advocate Magazine in partnership with GLAAD. I'm Jeffrey Masters on Twitter and Instagram at JeffMasters1. I'll see you next week. Bye.